I gave a sermon here last year, I think it was sometime last year, towards the end of the year, titled, uh, Why God Called You Now, or Why Were You Called Now? I should have looked it up better, I just assumed I remember the title, but it's about the work, uh, and how important the work is to the church, and how it's tied into our calling now, how it's an inseparable part of our calling now. But there were things in, in the realm of that topic that I didn't get the opportunity to really talk about. Uh, because it's it's a very expansive topic. There's a lot of different elements to that sort of thing. For instance, it's very easy to think of the work as something headquarters does or individuals at headquarters do. This Even this commercial, which is actually I'm very much looking forward to, getting to be there while it was recorded and seeing many of you. We actually, when you see the testimonials in the commercial, those were not scripted. Those were what the, the members themselves came up with, given that they read the magazine. The, the, the person in charge of, of the professional we hired to help us make this commercial did help them kind of squeeze it down when you're only going to be on screen for two to three seconds. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to get down what you say, but it really was all all their idea in terms of what they were saying. And we didn't get to use everybody. So if you haven't been informed whether your your bit made it to the commercial or not, and you've been looking forward to seeing your time on television, you discover you're not there. I hope you won't hold that against Tomorrow's World magazine. You know, they could only use so much and the goal was to get, you know, a lot of material. But even then, here you had, you know, some some members there and honestly it was it was really enjoyable to see. But still it was sort of a headquarters driven effort. And it's very easy to think of the work as something headquarters does. But then you wonder, well, then, then what is my role in all of this? What is my role as an individual? Because the work does touch all of our lives individually. It is a part of our lives. Now, it's true that there are some set apart for particular purposes. You know, the word evangelist, for instance, you know, means one who preaches the good news. Not all of us are ordained evangelists or for that matter, apostle uh, or pastor or these different roles. And ordinations do mean something. And yet at the same time, it's still the entire body of church. Uh, sorry, the entire body of Christ, of the church that longs to fulfill Christ's own mission. If we're a part of the body of Christ, then what mattered to him matters to us. And so what role do we play? The work really does involve every single one of us. And the work doesn't move forward without the entirety of the body being a part. You know, for those who have felt the difficulty where one part of your body doesn't work the way it used to, sometimes something extreme because of a stroke or something just mild where maybe your leg is asleep and suddenly you have to get from point A to point B and you're sort of dragging your leg along because it doesn't want to participate. It takes the entire body being committed for something to move forward and that definitely includes the work. Well, today I want to talk about that element of the work. I want to talk about specific personal actions that you and I take together as those who are part of the body of Christ and part of the work. Now, the title of the sermon today is Your Part in the work, your part in the work. In fact, for the sake of your notes, you might title it my part in the work, but not me, my, you, my, uh, because it really is. It's about your part in the work individually. And I want to get the obvious things out of the way very quickly. One part of your role in the work and my role in the work is to pray for the work, to pray for the work. These first couple of items, uh, we're going to cover pay and pray like so many people 
will mock sometimes, and I'd like to get that out of the way first. We'll talk about praying for the work. And I have heard people mock that before. Like, oh, I guess you want me to just pray for the work. That's what I'm supposed to do. It's like, yeah, absolutely, that's what you're supposed to do. If someone wants to mock the idea of praying for the work, rest assured that is not the Spirit of God speaking through such a person. I tell you, a hundred percent, that is either their own carnal human nature or it is the mouth of Satan, the devil. Because why in the world would the spirit of God prompt any human being to mock the idea of praying for any aspect of what God does in the world? Don't let anyone shame you about something like that. I know individuals in the work as in the in the church and that's just about all they can do. Their body is racked with pain. They're not able to travel. They're of such an age. They really don't know how much longer their life is going to go. And that is all they can do. Almost in life at all. Let alone for the sake of the things in the church and the things of God. And to dare mock the idea of praying for the work. Well, that's nothing. That's not anything. Well, please tell that to this widow who can't do anything else. Just walk right up to her and say exactly those words to her face. Please don't, actually, because they're terrible. And they're not actually God's own words. Paul himself clearly felt praying for the work was important. Turn to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, and we'll read the words of Paul, who frequently asked the brethren to pray about any number of things, actually. He was frequently in his letters asking for prayers. Was the Apostle Paul doing that because he didn't believe they were important? Ah, I'll give him some busy work, right? Like a teacher that, i got to keep the kids quiet for half an hour while I finish my the jumble uh, puzzle out of the newspaper. You know, I'll just give him some math problems to do. Not that I ever did that as a math teacher. Uh, you know, i was give him some busy work. Or did Paul realize, I want God's people on their knees talking to him about these things I'm sharing with them. And among the things he asked in multiple instances was to ask the brethren to pray for the work. Starting in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. Verse 2. We read Paul's words, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. There's multiple elements in that. But the very first thing I want to make sure that all of us understand is that he is requesting prayer. He's taking the time back when it wasn't a matter of typing really quickly on an iPad or a computer. But, you know, there's ink and there's animal skins or parchment, whatever they're using. And which that stuff was precious, by the way. They didn't just waste those materials. They couldn't go easily go to Office Depot and buy a ream of, of 500 sheets of paper. It was a big deal. And he made sure the brethren were going to be praying for the work because he knew both of those elements were important. For instance, what does he mention there in verse three? That God would open to us a door. 
very often in the New Testament, in these particular passages later in Revelation, a door is an opportunity to preach the word, to preach the message to the world. Those who are Philadelphians are, are encouraged by Christ that when he opens, no man can shut it. And yet at the same time, if he has it shut, no man can open it. And so Paul appeals to the brethren, please ask God to open a door so that we can do this. Even though he's in chains, he's still thinking of what opportunity he can have to preach the word. And so what does he do? Surely he's appealing to God himself, but he's also asking all of the brethren, pray that God will open a door. But also asking for prayer, the manner in which he does it. As he says in, uh, let's see, so he says to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chain that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Help me to do it properly. Help me to truly preach this very thing we've been given with the proper amount of boldness, with the proper amount of passion, uh, with accuracy to the truths of God. He considered the brethren in Colossae to be actually partners with him. And he asked them to pray. It would be wrong for us to mock that. I don't want to belabor it much because I've talked about this a lot, in fact, in that particular sermon. But let's still go ahead and turn there to Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, we have the tale of Peter and John and how they've been arrested by the Jewish leadership concerning their preaching of the gospel and the miracle that was actually performed in Christ's name at their hands. And they were threatened about it. And so they're sent back, they're let go, but they have been threatened. And these are serious threats. In fact, it happens later, they actually do get beaten for it. And getting a beating for it was actually the good option because the worst option was they were potentially going to be killed for it. And so they got a beating for it later. So, so these were serious threats. So they come back. We've talked about this actually in that previous sermon. So again, I don't want to belabor it. They come to the brethren and it says in verse 23, being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. They share that information. They talk about it. They let them know. They let the brethren know. Here's what's going on. Here's what's happened. So verse 24, when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, and let me pause there. We're not going to read the entire prayer. I do recommend you do so. It's it's really fascinating how much time is spent praising God for who he is before they even get to a single request. But it's important. There's a, it's a subtle detail in verse 24. It says, so when they heard that, they raised their voice. So those who heard this then prayed together about that. The kind, it wasn't a bunch of cacophonous voices. It would have been orderly. It would have been right. That's You can read Paul's, we actually come to Paul's instructions to the Corinthians. He's not interested in a cacophony. It wasn't everybody in their seat praying in their own way. But still it was them as a body. Those who heard the news prayed. The congregation cared about these things. And then when you get to their request... The request isn't, God, please protect us, please keep us safe, even though I'm sure that was on their minds. There's nothing wrong with asking to God for God to protect us and to keep us safe. When you actually get to their request in verse 29, it's them being invested. It shows their investment in the work. Verse 29, now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. 
When they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Clearly, the work mattered to them. It mattered enough for them to pray about it. Their prayers during the week would have been about the work. It would have been about opening doors. It would have been about a successful message. It would have been about insight. I'd, believe me, you know, Mr. DeSimone was up here talking about the commercial. Uh, you know, he worked hard with, uh, with his team there, with, uh, uh, with, with Mr. Hall and, 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 and all the rest of you wonderful guys in the TV department that make us look so much better than we deserve. Uh, you know, and work together on trying to figure those things out. But how many times we were talking about it and realized, you know who doesn't know how to make a commercial? These guys, right? We didn't know. We don't know what we're doing. And so you're going into these new ventures and, you know, experts are giving you advice, but they still want to make a commercial you're pleased with. And, and there's, there's a lot of question marks. There's things we're just figuring out. But part of the reassurance we have is that, you know, we're not the only ones praying about it. God's people are praying about it. This cares to, it matters to his body across the world. And that God is listening to that. Those prayers do make a difference. If we consider our prayers from, from our father's perspective, what, is, what sort of work would he desire to empower? Would it be a work in which only a few people are on their knees talking about it and talking to him about it? Or would he desire to empower a work in which thousands of people all across the world are appealing to him for his success, that it go into new areas, that it bring in new people, new kinds of people, places it's never reached before. If you are the Father in heaven, or if you're Jesus Christ in heaven, who sacrificed things on this earth that many of us have never sacrificed before in terms of doing our jobs, when he was tired and he was exhausted, and he just tried to get away from the people just to take a bit of a nap so he could be recharged, because he knew the, the, the laws of radiant health, you know, and he knew biblical principles of health, and he knew he needed a nap. So he tried to get away to take a nap, and his father doesn't actually let him have a break in that time. All the people run to where the boat is going, and he gets there thinking, finally, here for a rest, gets off the boat. Hey, we're here, keep talking. And what does he do? He launches into it again. He just goes forth with more energy. That's Jesus Christ. He cares about this. What do they long to see on this earth? is the rest of the body of Christ showing them how much they care about it. We won't turn there for the sake of time, and frankly, Mr. Hernandez covers it way better than I ever would. But we know in the book of Revelation, in particular chapter 5 and chapter 8, talks about how our prayers are associated with the incense burned before God. And you know, there's some things you can burn and smell, and it's pretty disgusting. You know, We just recently got a... Uh, what is it you use to make mulch and, and stuff like that? Composter. We have a little composter. And I was really concerned. It's like, I don't want the neighborhood running us out with pitchforks, you know, and, and torches. You, the stinky family, get rid of the stinky family. And I didn't want that. And thankfully, it's not one of those. It actually should not cause, a, you know, a riot. It actually does not, does not stink, thankfully, so far. But incense that is pleasing to God is something that he wants to smell in the air is described as being associated with our prayers. Well, if you were God, what would make prayers like incense pleasing to you? Would it be the prayers of a people that care about the same things you care about? Would it be hearing the prayer of someone far distant, perhaps even from, from Charlotte, North Carolina, praying about the work of God, something that he knows he cares about and his son cares about? That would be a pleasing aroma to him. So please don't discount your prayers. It's actually part of our job in the work to pray about it. 
A second role we have as individuals in the work is to financially support the work. It's not an easy thing to talk about to a certain extent because part of your support of the work uh, puts food in my children's mouths. And you might be looking at them saying, I think they're getting too much food. I really think, uh, you know, you guys need to, you guys need to cut back. Uh, but it is important to support the work financially. Now let's turn to Exodus chapter 35. Exodus chapter 35. And it's not about giving more than you can, but it is important to God that we support what he's doing. God who doesn't need us to support it. Even in this case, we're about to read about with the tabernacle. You know, God could snap his fingers and turn a mountain into gold and say, hey, you guys get after it. You know, go grabbing parts of that, you know, and bringing it in and, and using it for my purposes. But he didn't. He actually turned things over to the people. It said in Exodus chapter 35, starting in verse 4, speaking through Moses, we read here, And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Eternal commanded, saying, verse 5, Take from among you an offering to the Eternal. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Eternal, gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, some of those very difficult threads to make with the dyes they had back then, frankly, very expensive. And goat's hair, ram skins, dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light, and spices for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. Let's jump down to verse 21. Verse 21. We read, then everyone came whose heart was stirred and everyone whose spirit was willing. And they brought the eternal's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting for all its service and for the holy garments. They came, both men and women, as many as had a willing heart. And let me pause right there and talk about the, you know, the passage where Jesus Christ says, you know, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And we often highlight the fact that treasure... It can mean so many things. It means time, right? Time is very precious to us. You know, where is our time? Like our time spent in prayer, for instance. But it's also true that treasure means literal treasure. It's also true that it actually means, uh, you know, uh, money uh, and those kinds of things and resources. And it says here, and they brought earrings and nose rings and rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold. That is, every man who made an offering of gold to the eternal. You know, they had just come out of Egypt and they had various piercings, some of them. I'm not sure that all of them look like a Chipotle worker, but still, uh, you know, they had a variety of things and they're breaking them off, you know, and contributing those to the pile. Verse 24. I love Chipotle, by the way. I'm not, not in this in Chipotle. Just don't go in with a magnet. I would just say it's probably a bad idea. Uh, Exodus chapter 35, verse 24. Everyone who offered an offering of silver or bronze brought the Lord's offering, the eternal's offering. And everyone with whom was found acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. All the women who were gifted artisans spun yarn with their hands and brought what they had spun of blue, purple, scarlet, fine, uh, fine linen. And all the women whose hearts stirred with wisdom spun yarn of goat's hair. The rulers, you know, not everyone can bring at the same level. Now you're actually getting to those uh, in higher positions. The rulers brought onyx stones and the stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate and spices and oil for the light, for the anointing oil and the sweet incense. The children of Israel 
brought a free will offering to the eternal. All the men and women whose hearts were willing to bring material for all kinds of work, which the eternal by the hand of Moses had commanded to be done. You know, stay here. We're not going to turn to it. But you know, in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7, Paul talks about how the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And he didn't just pull that out of thin air. It's interesting how many times in Exodus 35, he's talking about those whose heart was willing. Those whose heart was in this, who wanted to invest in the work of God for the tabernacle and what he was doing. Uh, Let's actually turn to the next chapter, chapter 36, and jump to verse 4. Because they brought all this stuff, so the craftsmen are working. The craftsmen are, are making the things. It's kind of an interesting quilt, in a sense. It's not a quilt. They were able to hammer these things together and make beautiful uh, pieces of work. But I know I've seen my wife do quilt work, and, you know, you get little bits here and there, and, and some of you do these sort of scrap quilts with random pieces you get. In a sense, the tabernacle sort of became all these pieces from all over the children of Israel and were brought together by these craftsmen to form these beautiful unified works. And so that's what's going on. The craftsmen are working on it. And then verse 4, we read of Exodus 36, verse 4, Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing, and they spoke to Moses saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done. Indeed, too much, too much, because the people were excited and they were willing to do that because it meant something to them. And this work progresses because of all of our support, of our tithes and our offerings. And so you put the first thing I mentioned and now the second thing I mentioned and you get what people will sometimes deride as pay and pray or pray and pay depending on the order in which uh, it's, it's being made fun of. You know, I'll mention for one thing, we do these things and keep in mind as we do these things, God is doing something in us because he plans on transforming us inside as he brings us to his kingdom. And he's trying to transform us in such a way that we care about the things that the future ruler of that kingdom cares about so that our concerns, so that our passions, so that our drive match his. In fact, if our concerns, passions, and drives don't match his, why should we have any part in that kingdom? If we're not in line with the ruler of that kingdom, how could we be any sort of servant? And these sort of actions, when Jesus Christ says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also, it's more than just some sort of evidence of where our heart is. Someone pointed out once, and I think I've I've made this point in other sermons, that you find your heart tends to follow where your treasure is. As someone said years ago, I, I can't recall the name of who said it, but I know I heard it from the lectern, and it was a point I've always benefited from, that if you want to shift the direction of your heart, shift the direction of your treasure, your time, your energies, your resources, and you'll find in time your heart starts to care about that. And I've, I've, I've greatly appreciated that. Who doesn't want a tool to be able to reshape their heart? And God wants to bring into the kingdom those whose hearts are aligned with those of Jesus Christ. And also on a personal note, and I'll try to bring some personal examples in this because I've been affected by those in years past who have saw these ways to be a part of the work and have done them. 
when it comes to paying and praying, for those of you who did that in the 80s, and actually before that, given I was looking at booklets from the 50s and 60s because I was too shy to order the current books when I came into the church, I was 14 years old in 1984 when I first saw Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong broadcasting out of WTBS Atlanta, uh, either midnight or 1230, I can't recall, on Sunday nights. I was always up late because I was a procrastinator. Those of you who know me know that's not a surprise. And I was usually up late doing my schoolwork at the last minute before it was due Monday morning. And I saw Mr. Armstrong on television and watched him every Sunday night. The literature I was given because I knew someone, I uh, actually had a friend in school who was in the church. I'll get to those things later. I was too shy to request a booklet, which I find a great irony today. So I was too, I only called once and I got a voicemail and I just hung up and said, Oh, I'm never doing that again. You know, I was just, I was just too shy. But thankfully, uh, the, the, the friend I knew who was in school, who was actually in the church had this shoebox full of booklets. And, you know, booklets from the 50s and 60s. I read about the hippies, you know. There weren't any more hippies when I was, when I was there in the 80s. But I was 14 years old. And then 15 and 16 and 17. I didn't start attending until I was 18. And I'd even, frankly, in all the stuff that I read, somehow didn't really pick up in terms of offerings and the holy days and all the rest until I was already attending. I didn't pay a dime. And I could not have paid a dime. Unlike with my kids who are working hard to pay for their own education, my mom really believed in, uh, she really thought, you know, school should be my work. And so I never, I didn't get a job outside of high school. So I didn't have any money. And I never had to pay any. Why? Because some of you who are here today, either you or your parents, in some cases your grandparents, even great-grandparents, because in 1984, this work meant enough to them that they would support it. Not knowing that maybe one day they'd be stuck listening to a 51-year-old talk about it, you know, behind the lectern years later. But it made a world of difference to me. Mr. Armstrong's television program in WTB, on, off WTBS wasn't cheap, but it mattered to thousands of people all over the world so that whenever they sent in that four bucks from their lawn mowing gig uh, that their mom and dad made them do so they could pay to go to SCP camp or whatever, not knowing what that four dollars would be used for. My life is, is and will be forever different because of that. And the life of the person I tricked into marrying me and the life of the children that God blessed us to create will be forever different because of that, because people were praying and paying in 1984, in 1985, in 1986, until I could get here and start rowing at the oars with you. So thank you for that. Do not ever, even if you just stop right here at these two things, there's more things to come, but do not ever let anyone mock you for these two things. Never. You don't have to say straight to their face, Shut up, Satan, the devil, because that would be a little rude and it might be a little weird. It's definitely not a very cancel culture kind of thing to say. But still, feel free in your mind to think Satan, the devil, needs to shut up and then say, well, thank you. I, I, I disagree with you. I think I'll go someplace else. You know, don't put up with that kind of stuff because it is the devil's lies. So those are two points, two points. But we do have others. A third point, a third way in which we are a part of this work, you and I together. 
And that is to encourage those who are laboring. To encourage those who are laboring. Jesus Christ asked all of us to pray that God would send more laborers into the field. But it does take encouragement when you're out there. If you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. You know, it is emotionally exciting to do the work. I'm not going to pretend that it's not. Uh, being at a TWP and not knowing whether you're going to get people who are excited and they're humble and they just want to learn, or you're going to get someone who believes that they're a, a prophet, a modern prophet, and they're here, frankly, to you know, preach against you, and you don't really know what's coming, and that, that is very exciting. Uh, it's exciting uh, to, to get to be on television. I don't want to pretend that it's not. I, I've, I've said before, I know the moment we move to holograms, I'll get booted because in 3D, I'm just not worth putting up on a screen. But uh, anyway, I'm not saying it's not exciting. It is. But it is also incredibly emotionally draining. And it can be difficult in a lot of different ways. And Paul essentially addresses this a bit. And I'm not pretending we have it as difficult as the Apostle Paul did. But I appreciate his comments. And they resonate to a certain extent. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I'll start in verse 4. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 4. Paul says, great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. That's a great way to put that. Verse 6, nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, that I rejoiced even more. He felt upheld by them. The reminder that came by means of Titus that he wasn't in this alone, that there's a difference that's being made. You know, Mr. Weston, when he gets, he gets emails, when he gets a particular encouraging one here and there, he'll often send it around so that some of us have the chance to see it. And I just, I'll quote from one that he sent very recently. It was actually from someone in Canada. And someone wrote in and said, uh, and I saw the letter. It was, a, I can't remember if it was hand typed, but I remember it was, it was kind of a scanned PDF. And it said, thank you so much for all the help you and your colleagues have given me. The magazine with the article Anti-Semitism Rising means so much to me and gave me the strength that I need to keep going, to think about the future, and to be a better man myself. You gave me honest feedback when I needed it the most. I wish I had listened to you a long, long time ago, but it's still not too late. You inspire me to learn new skills, to accomplish things I didn't know before. I've become a useful man to myself, and I'm dedicated to being a better man and a hard worker. You made these things possible just by watching your TV program. And it was encouraging, and it was uplifting, and all of us share in that. And that's part of why a few issues ago in the Living Church News, we tried to post a lot of those letters so that all of you would understand that we're all a part of that. But it's so uplifting in terms of you know, staying up late and working on an article or working on a script of some sort to get that kind of encouragement. And so many of you do invest that time. 
And do stop by and tell, you know, a speaker, you know, when he's done, you know, that, well, thank you for your sermon today. You know, during the portions where I was awake, I found it very profitable. Uh, you know, but to do something to encourage those who, who, are, who are striving and who, who have their own insecurities and the challenges that they're wrestling with in their life and their own personal questions about, is this the right way to do it? Is this a good idea? I don't really know. That makes a difference. It makes a huge difference. And all of us play a part in that. Let's look at one more scripture in this vein in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians 2. Part of what really motivates you and stirs you in doing the work is when you talk with people who recognize that we're all in this together. And I... I just resonated with this when I read Paul's writing this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. Verse 19, where Paul says, For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. You know, that idea that by whatever he might be doing, God's will is being fulfilled uh, in the lives of other people. And they are being drawn closer to that day so that when Christ returns, he'll be able to look around and see them around him. It meant something to him. It's so encouraging. You know, the Apostle John told his audience once, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. That's Third John in verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth that these things we've been given to be able to share with the world and that people have come in for uh, are living by those things. We have an opportunity. We have really an obligation to strive to encourage those who are laboring. And that is a very real part of the work. A fourth part we have, a fourth element of our role is to be an example to those outside. An example of those who are not within this, this beautiful garden that we get to enjoy amongst each other, but those who are not a part of the church yet or the body of Christ. So to be an example to those outside. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter and chapter 3. And this is clearly a very specific application uh, concerning those circumstances where you have uh, someone who is in the faith, who came into the faith while married to someone who either was not called or has not responded. And he's trying to encourage wives in this circumstance. And so Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, Wives likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Now, here it means, of course, the fear of the eternal, right? The dedication to do the right thing. Now, that's to wives in these circumstances, which can be very difficult circumstances. But it really does apply so much more broadly than that. Our example speaks volumes to other people. You know, we have a hymn about being ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And sometimes we only deploy that in terms of the idea, the biblical idea that we're ambassadors when we're trying to explain why we're disconnected from certain elements of the world. It's why we don't vote. 
It's, it's not why, but it's a great way to summarize why, if you will. There's lots of verses that impact those, those facts. But, you know, we don't participate in the politics of this world. If you do, that's a mistake. You need to repent and stop. Uh, we don't do jury duty. We don't jump in and judge according to the world does. It's hard to be a Christian and actually uh, judge righteously and do that. Uh, again, you know, we should repent if we're allowing that to happen. And we'll talk about being an ambassador for Christ in that sense. But it means so much more than that. An ambassador doesn't land in a country and say, well, I'm here not to participate in your affairs. No, where's the nearest ice cream stand? I feel I would like some dessert. No, he's there to represent another nation. That's his main function, is to represent something else to those who are not actually a part of it. That's what being an ambassador is. And all of us have to internalize that, that whether we're students in school, whether we are teachers in school, uh, whether we are employees, whether we are the employer, whether we are middle management, no matter what situation in which we find ourselves, we are an ambassador of the kingdom of God to a world that doesn't understand. They need to be a part of that. Let's turn to Acts chapter 8 for an interesting example. It could be easy to misunderstand. I want to make sure we don't. But sometimes in trying to avoid misunderstanding it, we, we can miss other points. Leading up to Acts chapter 8, you had Stephen's testimony before the Jews, which he told them the truth and got killed for it. And those who killed him were essentially sort of under the guise, uh, working under the auspices of Saul, who became Paul, so Saul of Tarsus, when he was truly, truly persecuting the church very heavily. And so after that, we read in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death, that is the death of Stephen. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. You know, it's so funny in this world. Don't get me wrong. Things are getting a bit rough if you stand for truth, if you stand for a biblical Christianity. It is getting difficult. You know, you get YouTube's videos banned you know we have our program being banned sometimes but we do need to be careful sometimes we go out there with that rhetoric and says we are just being hardcore persecuted it's like the roman empire all over again don't say things like that because it's not and it it it, it makes us seem a little unbalanced if we think that's what it is if we're thinking it's persecution like the first century then please call Mr. Strain and explain who was it that came over and dragged your wife away by her hair to throw her in jail. Let him know, you know, is it even legal? Let's, let's call the police. Let's do something. Don't get me wrong. There is real persecution. It is increasingly, say, on the job. It's here or there. But we have to be careful with our hyperbole. We have to make sure. Because if this is persecution, what do we call what comes later, right? This was super-duper persecution, you know. They were experiencing real persecution. You didn't know there wasn't going to be beating on the door and someone coming in to drag off your parents if you were a child. And then what happens to you? 
But what happened? Even under this kind of pressure, what did you see in the people? Verse 4, Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now, this does take some qualification. This does not mean that they were scattered and they found the closest open square they could go into and kind of got up and just started randomly preaching to everybody. It didn't say that all of them took on themselves the role of the Apostle Paul, of the role of an evangelist. But what it does say is they were not ashamed of the truth. And wherever they went, the gospel of the kingdom of God, the true name of Jesus Christ, everything he stood for, all of that went with them. Because if you've been in this world for any length of time, and I don't see anyone sitting up listening to me intently as an infant, so most of us have been, you notice your faith gets attention called to it here and there. You notice you start to stand out in certain ways. Your employer asks questions. Uh, your coworkers ask questions. And we have an example to be, uh, we have an opportunity rather to be an example of them. Someone said a long time ago, someone not in the church, they said, you may be the only, your life, you may be the only Bible some people ever read. And we have to ask ourselves, when someone looks at me in my life, are they reading the words of the gospel? Are they reading in my life the message Jesus Christ has for this world? Not because I'm spitting it at them out of my mouth, but in my interactions with them and how they see me working with my employee. You know, I've been in meetings in the past. My boss was a woman, a wonderful French-Canadian gal. I just loved her very much. She was so good to me and my, and my family. And I was in meetings, and she would be present, and other people, and someone would cuss and say a dirty word, and they wouldn't apologize to her. They'd apologize to me, right? But she's a lady, you know? I mean, even she, and she didn't like it either. It really appalled both of us how much bad language they were using in these professional settings. Why? Because not because I went around saying, oh, You know, I didn't do that. And honestly, my example is not always what I really wish it would have been. But in some kind of ways, someone picked up, I really shouldn't say bad words around Wally Smith. Because they saw me beat up that guy the other day. No, I did. I never really did anything but that, I, that I would know of. But they pick up on things like that. That example makes a difference. You know, I think of my father-in-law, Troy Riggs. And I might mess up this story a bit. And my mother-in-law can correct me later. But uh, Mr. Senna did a TWP in Texas once, you know, a Tomorrow's World presentation. And, you know, you have people coming from everywhere. You don't know where they're all coming from. And there was a fellow there that had worked with my dad, my father-in-law, about 10 years or so before. It's like, you, you know, you're, you know, Troy Riggs, right? This is what all it was about, all of this. That's what made you so weird, right? You know, all those years. What if dad's example had been less than what it should have been? He could have looked at this guy in work and thought, well, God's not really calling this guy, right? I don't got to worry about this guy. Smoke, 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 cuss, 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 whatever it was, whatever bad things he could have done. At the same time, he wasn't trying to twist the guy's arm. The guy didn't open his locker at work and find a new stack of literature that day, you know, that dad was trying to force on him. But rather, God did his things in his time in which my father-in-law never would have known that his example was a crucial ingredient in what God was doing in the world. Those examples make a difference. There might even be some who actually asked to come and visit, possibly, almost purely based on your example. You know, that does happen. I remember giving a, 
a sermon once in a particular area, and there I was I got a call from a member who had said, "Oh, ah, you know, um, there's this guy we know, and you know, he he knows a lot of us, and he's been really interested. He has kind of a Sabbath keeping background, and he's asked if it's okay to come to church tomorrow." And we said it was fine. But is it fine? We want to, you know, we want to make sure, right? We want to make sure. Well, you know, pastors need to, the freedom to, to make their own policies about such things in a local area. My particular policy was, yeah, that's probably fine. But if it goes poorly, I will always remember who invited that person, right? So I, you know, keep that in mind. Well, I remember it was very weird. It's, it's a longer story that I won't tell now. But I gave probably the single worst sermon I've ever given uh, that, that Sabbath. And some of you might disagree and say, no. I've surely heard worse, but it was, it was really, really, really strange. It was, I was trying to talk about how our faith is super logical. And so I wanted to talk about the rules of logic and how the law of identity that A equals A. And you're already realizing, yeah, okay, that was probably a terrible, and it was, it was bad. I gave it in all of my areas thinking it would get better. It just got worse every time, every time I gave it. And, and then it didn't really, I didn't, I didn't mix it together until I'm up there in the middle of it. And I see this, this poor guy out there and think, this is literally the first thing this fellow's ever heard, you know, out of the mouth of a living Church of God minister. I'm surprised he hasn't gotten up and walked out immediately. And then, uh, anyway, when I met him, finally, I was prepared to apologize. And he said, that was just one of the best messages I've ever heard in my life. You know, he just went on and on about it, which shows God can work miracles in some cases. Uh, but, you know, did God tailor that scenario? I have no idea. But the fact is, he would never have even been there if it weren't for the example of God's people in his life that made all of this somehow something he was interested in being a part of at the time. A fifth role we have in the work. A fifth role we have. And that's to be an example to new people on the inside. To be an example to new people on the inside. You know, it doesn't make much difference if, say, Mr. Rod McNair does an outstanding telecast and someone watching it just suddenly can't help themselves anymore and they have to ask for a visit. They've got to, they've got to see what, what all the hubbub is about. You know, this is clearly where Christ is working. And they come in and then they meet all of us and realize, Clearly, Christ isn't working here. This is, I was completely wrong, and they turn around and go. We are the fruit people looking to see to prove everything they've read, heard, and seen is not just a show. And all of us have a responsibility for that. Kind of an, perhaps an odd example to turn to, but turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul is dealing with a lot of confusion in Corinth. There are a lot of gifts, and it was a time when there was a lot more spiritual, miraculous gifts being doled out than what we see in the church today. And the congregation was in chaos. And actually, one of the reasons, one of the benefits, I hope, can come from this message is occasionally, honestly, it doesn't happen very often, but over the years, I've heard it every once in a while, someone who feels like, well, you know, Thank you for talking about the work, but you know, I, I feel like I need to be a part of the work. I need, to, I need to do something. And then you talk about all the things they can do, and none of those things satisfy. Because you start to realize, oh, they want to do something showy. They want to do something out front. 
It's like when someone comes to talk to you and says, oh, you know, Mr. So-and-so, I, I just want to serve. I want to serve more in the congregation. And so you give them jobs and you say, well, that's wonderful. Be, wanting to serve is a wonderful thing. And next thing you know, they're, they're managing the, the information table or they're in charge of, you know, handing out uh, 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 booklet, uh, hymnals or greeting people at the door. But then they keep coming to you. Well, you know, I would just like to serve. You know, two months later, why, well, you know, I, I just... I just want to serve. It's like, well, there's nothing left, but, oh, you want to give sermonettes. That's what you want to do. Oh, now, you know, I understand. But that, that word doesn't quite make it in there, right? And if they'd have been transparent, maybe it could have been talked about. But sometimes people want to be up front. They want the showy part of things, which in the end isn't a desire to serve fundamentally. It's longing to satisfy something that isn't necessarily about being part of the work. And Paul was dealing with a little bit of that. You know, here we have people that and every gift they have is constantly on display to the entire congregation. And it ends up being this environment of chaos. And, and God isn't the author of such confusion. So he's trying to address that in Corinth. And there are some points here that we can actually get that are related to this topic. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting in verse 22, he speaks about tongues, but he's not talking about what the world calls tongues. He's speaking of the ability to miraculously speak languages you do not know, that you are not taught. So that's what he's talking about. If anyone's confused about that, by all means, counsel with Mr. Strain, not me. Counsel with Mr. Strain. No, feel free and talk to any of us. We would love to explain that to you because it is important. Many people have been deceived by the devil and dragged slowly out of the church, centimeter by centimeter, by confusion on topics like this. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22, he says, Therefore, tongues, that is this gift of speaking foreign languages you did not learn, are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers, but prophesying, inspired speaking, which in the first century certainly did include sometimes this kind of seeing things that had to be directly revealed. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say you're out of your mind? You know, just think if we walked in and over here, someone's kind of going pontificating in German, just on and on and on. And here, someone in Spanish. And over here is someone in Italian and someone over here in Esperanto, perhaps, you know, over here where all the nerds are Klingon, you know, being spoken. But it's just this cacophony of different things. And someone comes in, another Greek from the area, and he walks in and walks right out because what in the world, right? What is what is really going on in there? And Paul is asking them, consider your example to other people. You're so busy on folk expressing your gift, expressing your gift. If you'd actually think of the impact on other people as they come in, I wouldn't have to explain these things to you, he says. Verse 24, but if I'll prophesy, if I'll speak in this kind of spiritually informed way, which later he says is not in a big gang, right? But one at a time. And you notice when members come in, how do they have to talk to us? One at a time. Sorry, when new people come in, one at a time. He says, but if all, if every person this person has come in contact with prophesies, that is, speaks in a way that God's spirit is able to influence what you're saying, not always because of a big revelation, but because what you say is consistent with the scriptures. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he's convinced by all, he is convicted by all. 
and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Now, if they ever do that in front of you, just go, winner, you know, don't do that. That would be odd. He doesn't necessarily mean they do it right there. And there are people, let me just say amongst myself, amongst myself, that doesn't make any sense. I work in editorial. Uh, let me just say for myself that I did in my early years growing in the church. There were times when I would fall on my face before God in my private room to give him thanks, uh, you know, and, and to talk to him about the things that I felt were revealed. Conversations I even had with people when they couldn't have known what I was going through. And they didn't say like in the 700 Club or some other organizations that I've seen where they go, oh, you know, I think you've got something going on in your life. It wasn't strange. They're just talking about their life asking me about mine. But in those conversations, something being prompted that means something to me more than they really ever could have guessed. You know, it happens small and large. Just making conversation with a new person makes a difference. It's hard to do, I know. Hey, where are you from? Oh, from Boise. Oh, wow. Well, I, I've got to go to the bathroom now. Bye, you know, or something. It's, it, it is. It, it can be it can be anxious. Uh, it can be anxiety generating. But that's why it takes courage, right? You know, just 10 seconds. Just realize I can be I can be courageous for 10 seconds. I'm going to go do it just for just for 10 seconds. Talk to that new person. But on larger scales, too, when some of us want to get together after services and maybe you're going to Chipotle, you know, to, to count the rings and and uh, implants on people's faces. And you say, hey, guys, let's go, you know, let's go to Chipotle. And there's that new person that maybe wouldn't normally be a part of your social group and the rest, and you all pool your courage together and say, hey, we're all going to Chipotle. Do you want to go? Those things make a huge difference. You know, again, personal example, when I started attending, they had a covered dish meal my first Sabbath. The, the pastor there had just moved from another area and, and and he was new, so it wasn't in my honor. Uh, it was in his honor. And I remember being asked by a family, just so happened, my future wife's family, I didn't, I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know them from Adam or Eve. Uh, but they saw the new guy there and asked them to sit with them at the covered dish meal. And that began a relationship where, you know, we were driving all the way from college, sometimes having to spend the night. It was, church was not nearby. And so they, we'd have a place to stay sometimes. And we'd stay with various brethren. And I remember, you know, staying up late and talking to my future mother-in-law, not realizing that's, that's who she was, and my father-in-law and, and my future wife and her sisters, and seeing them be a family together had a powerful impact on me. Not because we got together, well, like we do every uh, day here, new person, let us open the Bible, for we shall read it together as we always do. You know, it wasn't a lot of that, but just seeing God's people who are devoted to his way of life live a regular life. You know, when somebody makes somebody else mad, which is going to happen when you're exposed to each other long enough, seeing how they handled it. When someone's imperfections started to show, see how they handled it. And then when they handle that imperfectly, seeing how they handle that, that real life interaction was part of what sold me on this truth. And it's not just the families. There was a single guy that made a huge difference. There were me and two other fellows who were freshmen in college together when we started attending the church. And our first feast, he just sort of adopted us uh, and said, hey guys, it's your first feast. You got to go to Big Sandy. You know, so we all worked together. It wasn't a requirement, but he was trying to sell us on it. So we did. The four of us camped together in this big army barrack tent. Uh, it was strange and wonderful. And I owe so much to that guy. 
who didn't let the fact that he was a single guy cause him to make excuses not to serve new people where they came in. That is doing the work. That is doing God's work. If we want to be a part of what he's doing, then we need to be willing to do those things. I'm living proof that it makes a difference. All right, a sixth item, a sixth way in which we have a part to play, we have a role in God's work. That is to personally invest in the church's unity. To personally invest in the church's unity. When we bring disunity into the congregation, we are actively harming the work. And when we work and we overcome and we look past things and help maintain that unity, we're actively serving the work. Don't take my word for it only. Listen to Jesus Christ. He's the one who gives us that truth. Turn to John chapter 17. By the way, when the Bible does give admonitions about maintaining unity and loyalty and fellowship with one another, why are all those admonitions in there? You know what I've almost never had to do with my sons is to admonish them. Oh, it's, it's been all day. Eat. You need food. Take in food. Do this. Open your mouth and place food within it. No, they're like nonstop holes into which my sustenance that I've paid for it continues to pour. I just haven't had to do that. You know, I've never, I've never had to, to make them do that. Oh, you know, guys, you've been awake for four days straight, you know, take a nap, lay on the couch, you know, with your greasy male head and, you know, and, and I don't have to, I've got a male head too, I know, but there's things we do naturally. We don't need admonitions to do that. I command all of you while you're sitting here, please continue to grow your hair, though very slowly, as well as your fingernails and toenails. Why do I not need to tell you to do that? Because it's happening while you sit here. If there's multiple admonishments for something in the Bible, it is generally because it is hard to do. It's not easy. And I will say, if it actually occupied even a moment of the prayer of Jesus Christ before he was about to be tortured to death, it's because he knew it would be difficult and he cared enough to spend some of his last breaths in devotion to make sure that God would be invested in it and then had it recorded so we would be invested in it as well. And that involves our unity as well. In John chapter 17 and verse 20, where Paul, I'm sorry, Jesus Christ is praying for us. He's literally praying for all of us here in Charlotte, the people all over the world, even in the 21st century. Because he says in verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, that is those who are sitting at his table, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And that is me and that is you. That is everyone who's ever grown up in the church with parents in the church who eventually came to believe these things because of what we see written in the Bible. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is literally praying for us in this passage. And you and I have the opportunity to either be a partner with his father to fulfill this prayer or have an opportunity to serve the devil who would very much like Christ's prayer to go unfulfilled. And what does he pray for in this moment? 
Next verse, verse 21. He prays that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. Our unity, our ability to look over each other's bruises and uh, bruise-making knuckles and all the kind of things we, we do personality-wise that sometimes make it a challenge to be with each other. You know, all the little accidental slights, all the slights that don't seem so accidental, all of those kind of things. When we engage our Christian character and are able to look over those things and maintain that unity, Jesus Christ himself, our very Savior, the Son of God says, it impacts whether the world believes that our message actually came from him and his father or not. The message we preach is Jesus Christ. People will hear that message. Will they believe the father sent that message or will they not? Jesus Christ himself, the night before he died, felt it was important enough that he would pray, I want the world believing this message and therefore I know your people need to be one in a way that the world is unable to be one. We let worldly things come between us like worldly people. Let those things come between them. We're literally working against God's work. And there's so many things these days and they keep growing. Is it going to be political tensions, ideological tensions, the, the battle between capitalist and socialist? Is it going to be racial tensions? Is it going to be ideas about how education should work or not work? Is going to be things about vaccines or no vaccines? Is going to be ideas about this virus or the next virus? The moment those things come between us and we allow the world's divisions to be reflected in the body of Christ, we are working against the work of Jesus Christ and His Father. Rather, they're expecting to come and see a supernatural kind of unity. A unity the world hasn't figured out. And when they see that amongst us, it adds to the picture and they say, you know what, that may not have been just four weird guys on television. That may not be this free magazine that's coming out with all these ideas. It really might be that God is actually behind all of this. We have a choice to either invest personally, truly make personal individual decisions that nobody else can make in the unity of the living church of God, or we have opportunities to not do so. But make no mistake about it, we are the fruit people are coming to see. When we are on the telecast or whether a minister asks someone to come and visit, we're essentially giving them permission to be fruit inspectors. And we're the fruit. They're coming to check us out. And we're essentially asking them to do so. Jesus Christ said in John 13 that our love for each other would literally be a sign of those who are truly his disciples. And we have to decide whether we're willing to do that part of the work or not. One more way in which we contribute to the work. I try, it actually has seven. Worked out that way accidentally. Uh, but if you didn't get seven, feel free and talk to me later if I blurred some of these together. But the seventh one is we have a role in this way, to study, grow, and be ready to give an answer. To study and to grow and to be ready to give an answer. 
you'll turn to Acts chapter 18, we see an example of this. There's this interesting fella, Apollos. Now you got to think about guys like named Apollos when they came into the church and how easy it would have been to rib that guy. I mean, how many of us would have said, oh, Apollos, it's a nice statue they have of you over there, you know, because it's Apollo. I don't know. I would have. I know I would have. Acts chapter 18 and verse 24. We have this unconverted fellow who was just sharp as a tack. It's clear God ends up was going to use him for something, and God did. We can see in terms of the letters to the Corinthians, we see that Apollos later played an actual ordained ministerial role. But here we actually see him coming into the church. Acts chapter 18 and verse 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John, meaning he did not yet have God's spirit. There was no minister that actually yet had laid hands on him so that he was actually converted. He was frankly still in his sins. And yet at the same time, even just using his own carnal skills, he was very powerful in terms of what the Bible uh, said and didn't say. And God was working with him. When I say carnal, God, the Bible does indicate that God works with us through his spirit before he actually places his spirit in us at baptism. So God was clearly showing him things. It wasn't really just himself. Verse 26. We read, so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, these were members in the area, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, you might think they just took him to the side of the room, but we don't know what that was. Maybe they asked him over, right? Maybe they actually had lunch with him and actually spoke with him in a broader way and invested in him in some kind of way. But the thing is, they were prepared to do so because... Priscilla and Aquila knew what they were talking about. Verse 27, And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Priscilla and Aquila made a difference. Both husband and wife understood the truth well enough here was someone young and upcoming, presumably young, perhaps he wasn't, but he definitely was coming up, and they were actually able to help him know the way more accurately, to know the truth more perfectly, if you'll forgive me saying it that way. It's hard to be more perfect than perfect. Eventually, he was baptized and clearly brought into the ministry. We see that in 1 Corinthians. You know, I, I want to highlight my, my again, future in-laws. Again, because I have a personal story in all of this, how I saw the work being done in my life in various ways. And I, I didn't realize until I looked at things later. It was only maybe 10 or so years ago that I saw that, that when I was called into the church, it was called the Worldwide Church of God. And eventually that church apostatized and just turned away from the Sabbath, the holy days and everything. But before that happened, when I was attending, I learned the truth about the identity of Israel. I learned about the, the tribes of Israel. I learned who the United States was, etc. But then I saw years later that in their official documents, they say they were no longer teaching that around the time I started attending. And I, it surprised me. I thought, well, how is that possible? How is that possible? Because I, I knew it. 
And when I think about it, it actually wasn't a booklet. I didn't read the United States and Great Britain, that, that booklet, until actually I was in the church. And I do remember the, the minister in that area referring to it once, but when he referred to it, I remember I already knew it. And I, I think back to my conversations with my future mother-in-law that I didn't know would be a future mother-in-law at the time because she loves that stuff. If you talk to her long enough, you know she loves that stuff. Loves it more than I do. Just shut up about it, Mom. No, I'm just kidding. I would never actually tell her to shut up. But, you know, she loves those things. And so we would talk about it, and it was fascinating to me to the point that I never knew it wasn't even being taught anymore. She was like a real-life Aquila. Her husband like a real-life... Sorry, Priscilla. Uh, and her husband like a real-life Aquila in that sense to me. It made a difference. Now, now let's turn to Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. Mr. Ames stresses this so thoroughly and so frequently, and I appreciate how consistent he is on this and the prod that it, it puts on me. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, wrapping things up, Peter tells all of us, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Now, too many people interpret that to mean grow in terms of understanding brand new things that no one has ever understood before. And sometimes we think that theologically. Well, God's always constantly showing me new things. As in like new ideas, like something you've never heard from the church before, something you've never heard the ministry preach. I would ask you to question that. Question that. Because many times, I don't know if I can say every time, but I can say many times when... I've talked to people who feel like they're constantly seeing new things the church has never said before. Eventually, I come to discover that the fundamental things that we should know, they don't fully understand anymore. We can grow in grace and knowledge without it being something brand spanking new. That's often a sign of itching ears that need something to scratch them. We can learn it more depth. We can learn to understand things in ways we haven't before as we apply verses to our lives in different ways. But more importantly, for the sake of the work, the more we get grounded in those things, the better able we are to communicate them. You know, I taught calculus. I majored in math. I got a 4.0. Theoretically, I knew calculus and knew it really well. And yet, even after one year of teaching, I found I knew it so much better. And it wasn't because they invented new calculus since I graduated. It was because the things meant more to me. And I was able to communicate it differently. That was growth. That was a deepening in knowledge. Uh, let's turn to one more scripture on this point, and then we'll wrap up. First Peter chapter 3. And verse 15. So one book earlier, First Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. We read here, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We're told here, we should see as part of our job to always be ready to give a defense. Uh, the old King James says to give an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear as part of our job in the work. Again, one more personal example. One of the things I knew about the, my classmate who attended the church was that her family didn't keep Christmas. I, I, I'm always afraid. I want to make sure our young people get a 
a not wrong example. We were not dating. I was 14 years old. Every time I get a fever blister, I look like Daffy Duck. Uh, it was, the girls weren't interested in me yet. They had not discovered me yet, I will say. Uh, so she was just, just a friend. This wasn't, she was not dating me outside of the church. She was, we're just in English class together, math class together and stuff. But I, but I knew her because she was a really neat person. She was one of, one of my friends. And I thought also my church didn't keep Christmas the same way she didn't because the Church of Christ, they did not keep, at least mine, did not keep Christmas as a religious holiday. They did believe it was okay to observe it in a secular way with a tree and presents the way they thought, but they knew it was not Jesus' birthday. Jesus has no part of Christmas, but it's okay to keep it as a secular holiday. So I kind of thought, oh yeah, well hey, I, you know, I do that too. And we're talking on the phone once. And she said, oh, because I, you know, it's not, not exactly the same, you know, Christmas trees, like, you know, Jeremiah 10 talks about Christmas trees. I had never heard that before. And I looked it up. And there's a Christmas tree in there, you know, in Jeremiah chapter 10. Now, let me tell you, she was not a biblical scholar. In fact, uh, regrettably, she's not even in the church uh, anymore. She's not. Uh, she went to Ambassador College, and then after that, she, uh, she left. There was a lot of stuff going on there. But she was around long enough and able to give an answer to me to where in that moment, on that phone... The work of God moved forward in my life in a way it hadn't yet, where suddenly I had to ask myself new questions. She may not have been prepared for a lot of things, but she was prepared for that, and God gave her the opportunity to use that bit of knowledge for my benefit. We have an obligation to equip ourselves and to make sure we're ready to give an answer. We'll wrap up with pointing this out. The work belongs to all of us. Every single one of us has a part to play in it. The homebound widow who feels all she has is the ability to pray and just send cards to other members. The single lady nervously walking up to greet a new family to ask them where they're from, not knowing what question number two will be. The teenager mowing lawns for money and sending in his tithe. The mechanic answering his coworker who asked what in the world he does for two weeks every autumn. The parents working on helping their children to be respectful at services. The group inviting someone new to join their trip to Burger King, even they know, even though they know Burger King is a terrible place to take anyone. And the member going through the statement of fundamental beliefs for his daily Bible study. All of these are contributing to the work in the ways that we have all individually been called to contribute to this work. We do those things. And when we meet Jesus Christ in the air, he will look at every single one of us face to face and say, well done, my good and faithful servant.